Welcome to the Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Today, in honor of Black History Month, but we could be doing this any month, um, I'm going to be introducing uh, a young woman I just met who um, wrote the most really phenomenal uh, viewpoint in Connecticut, in the Connecticut Mirror uh, a little while ago, Catherine Morris. Um, who goes by Cat? So, um, so we're going to be talking about. You had your ten points for uh, New Year's resolutions for environmental justice, and um, and then then a little bit. I wanted to talk a little bit more broadly too about kind of your views, how you see things, how you see the climate justice movement, and um, what needs to happen to make that successful. Because we're 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 not winning yet, <laughs> as everybody probably knows. So. Yeah. Um, we don't necessarily need to go through all 10 points, Kat, but it was interesting to me that some of them were very specific, like, you know, wanting to plant more trees to increase the tree canopy, partly to, um, and these were all, all of your points were kind of had an equity, through an equity lens, as we say. And so, um, you know, there was that and there were, you know, there were other things. And then the last point was more power to the people, which I thought was um and then, you know, sort of explaining what you mean by that. So let's, yeah. let's just um, talk about some of, the, some of the things that you were calling for. Um, and let's start with the first one, which was trees, because partly because I love trees. And I think trees yeah. are really, really important. Um, I mean, they're important, you know, for the climate. They're important for people's physical and mental health. So um, just, you know, why did you start with that one? Why did I start with the trees? I think because they are in some sense like the best or easiest introduction people have to uh, environmentalism, right? So when I was really young and before I knew environmental justice was why it was important, um, before I experienced environmental racism truly, um, not only did I grow up having a large affinity for trees. I also love trees. I'm not sure if I believe in reincarnation or not, but if I do, I wanna be a tree in the next lifetime. Um, but they give me a great sense of peace. But also as a child, as I was saying, like the first thing you started to know about environmentalism was like, save the trees, right? I feel like before it was save the polar bears, it was save the trees. Um, and that was something that I, thought intuitively, I'm like, yeah, we should keep trees. They make oxygen, they're fun to climb, they're pretty. Um, and then as I got older and I got more aware of the health aspects of this, because a lot of my perspective on environmental justice too is ensuring um, health equity because they are one and the same, actually. Um, and so when you plant more trees, when you increase your tree canopy, not only are you, you know, recycling CO2, uh, you're cleaning the air, you're producing more oxygen, but you're also reducing stress, as you mentioned before. They're great stress relievers, um, and that also reduces depression, but you're also reducing the risk of respiratory disease and heat strokes uh, because of the fact that an increased tree canopy can help against the heat island effect. So in cities, it's been found 
through studies that were mostly around like Baltimore and Miami and New York, but this also is still the case in cities like Bridgeport and Hartford, New Haven, where there's less of a tree canopy. Um, in the summertime, you're more likely to have uh, the heat island effect, meaning that all the concrete uh, heats up the city more than it would more rural areas. So your temperature can be five to 20 degrees hotter in a big city as opposed to in a small town that has a larger tree canopy. And when you have a higher temperature, you have an increased risk of stroke, you have increased risk of asthma attacks, um, and that's a problem, right? So planting the trees is not only best for the environment um, in a lot of ways, right? It helps with global warming and whatnot, um, but it's also, it helps beautify areas, but it actually is also great for human health too. And that kind of just seems like an all around win for everyone. Yeah, yeah, I really like the way you described it. Um, and they're pretty, and we like to climb them. <laughs> just like They are, yeah, but, that was actually my connection to nature as a kid kind of really started there. I would like do that a lot. Um, I think I get that from just the culture of being a Jamaican woman, right? Like some of my parents are Jamaican immigrants um, and you know, it's a tropical island. If you want some mangoes, you're gonna go climb the tree to get the mangoes, right? And so that kind of culture, like, and I guess it's just ingrained in me and I, we had trees in my backyard as a kid, so yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I've got the list in front of me now, and I want to just pick a few more things for, to talk about. And, and also, just again, so many, you know, that these things, they all are so, if we would do the things that you have proposed, it would such, they would all go such a long way toward uh, creating more equity. And so your, your next point is um, more accessible farmers markets and community food hubs. So that's a huge thing. Like there's food deserts where people can't get healthy food and that has huge you know impacts on both mental and physical health uh, uh, you know just like when you're talking about the trees so um and and it, when you talk about this point maybe mention some of the things that are happening that you think are are positive yeah absolutely right so again yeah everything i frame this as related to environmental justice and health so it's pretty straightforward right good food good health <laughs> and so what the problem is in terms of what makes it an equity issue is that there are areas that I, a lot of people refer to as food apartheid as opposed to food deserts because, you know, a, food, a desert itself in nature, it, it's naturally occurring. Apartheid mm -hmm. and the separation that refers to policies that, uh, and law and like actual decision making that happens that facilitates this nutritional drought um sorry drought rather <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, so, good that's a thank yeah. you that's a really good point you've now i've changed i'll change my vocabulary when i refer to this so when people don't have access to good nutrition they also don't have access to defenses against um, environmental pollutants like lead, for instance. I learned that when I was working at the EPA. I had no idea about this, but when you're calcium deficient, you're more likely to suffer from lead poisoning um, or when you're zinc deficient, right? And so in the same areas where there are, where food apartheid exists, where people lack grocery stores or people lack access to fresh produce, those are the same areas where you're also going to see higher counts of lead-based paint that remains because, you know, those buildings have not been refurbished or individual, you know, renters can't afford to 
have their landlords do that, right? So all those things kind of tie in to each other um, and kind of responding to that also in part due to just people were starving during the pandemic, we saw this proliferation of um, community food hubs. So you see that now in like Fridge Haven, which has a great one. Fridgeport has a great one. Grow Hartford has been doing work for a while. If they had resources to help them continue doing that work, um, or if there were more resources that allowed other people to do that work elsewhere. So the, uh, the next one on your list is more equitable public transportation that reduces the demand for personal vehicles. And I'm, I'm really curious. I, I'm, I've been interested in transportation for a long time because for about 30 years, I was a pretty much daily bike commuter into New Haven. But I, I'm really curious about your, if you even have a position on this whole um, TCI, the Transportation and Climate Initiative, which uh, for our listeners, I can just briefly summarize as it was originally a, a, an agreement between all the all the North, New England and Northeastern states, all the way down to Virginia, actually, that would uh, require, you know, some, in some form, uh, a higher cost for transportation, and the money would be used to basically buy electric buses or, you know, just clean provide more service. It would it would uh, be targeted especially toward what they called underserved and over and more impacted communities. Underserved or more the rural areas, the impa uh, more impacted are basically, you know, the cities that suffered yeah. from the pollution, et cetera. It wasn't even voted on. They, were, they couldn't, the legislature couldn't get agreement on it, even though, you know, Lamont, Governor Lamont was pushing it, um, you know, in the beginning. So, and there were some, a group of people of color who actually did want it to, be passed and were able to get something the legislature to raise the minimum to go to under um serviced and over impacted communities from 35 percent to at least 50 percent which i thought was a real thing but it's still you know and i know there's a lot of dis, there's a lot of disagreement in in like low-income and people of color communities around this kind of approach so i don't know did you have a position on it yeah, so it's interesting. I have researched it a bit, but it's there's so much like kind of moving parts to it that I don't want to come off as like I expert studied the TCI proposal and whatnot. So that's my that's me prefacing this answer. Um, but I agree a hundred percent that we need to move away from having personal vehicles on the road for several reasons. Um, I mean, straight up there bad for the environment and they're dangerous people get into accidents on a regular basis uh and so on and so forth they also just have depreciating value every single person i know who has a car like hates having a car actually they love the convenience but they don't like the maintenance the how much it costs to maintain it um when you go to new york city most people are not using their cars because they have a transportation system that adequately or for the most part adequately meets the needs of um, people's commuting. We know that transportation, public transportation that's affordable facilitates people to get jobs, keep jobs that might be farther away, especially if they already don't have a car or if the commute is too much, yada, yada, yada. All that is great incentive to do it. I also know that from a health standpoint, all of that exhaust, as you're saying, with overburdened communities, the emissions from diesel engines or just, you know, car engines, it's terrible for your health. It contributes to respiratory illnesses like asthma, but also um, different 
different uh, issues in terms of your respiration, your lung health, um, and your body health at large. When it comes to how we go about making that transition, having studied public policy, right, I had my master's in public policy, one of the classes that we've taken um, would be on how we go about making those types of um, public policy, public changes, social changes, and how you factor in the economics of that. When you place a carbon tax on consumers, rather than producers, the goal is for that to reduce the demands because it's like, okay, it costs more to have this. However, when you're doing that in a situation where there is not yet an option for people to do something else, right? So if you decide you're going to tax people out of cars before you give them better public transit, that isn't helping people who are reliant on those things to get to their jobs. Maybe they have more than one job because they need to feed their family and the bus routes are inefficient for getting to each of them. Or there are no bus routes that get you to your um, your grocery stores, which is another issue. That's a huge issue in like Hartford, for instance. Um, there's just like no access to grocery stores using public transit. Those issues have to be fixed first before you start to get um, before you start punishing people for having cars, you have to give them viable alternatives first and viable alternatives that meet the needs of um, their economic circumstance. So whether it be they're underserved, so there's no public transit there, you can't tell those people not to have a car if you don't have an alternative for them, or um, they just need to work a lot and so they need better transit. It's a lot. I have friends who don't have cars because they can't afford it, um, but public transit doesn't work for them, so they're taking Ubers everywhere, and that's eating up a lot of costs for them too, right? So how we go about this issue is the equity lens. You can't just say like, okay, the end goal will enforce equity. The entire process needs to enforce equity. I feel like I just have to say that supporters of the Transportation and Climate Initiative, or TCI, don't call it a tax, but rather a charge on the wholesale price of oil, that if the dealers choose to pass that on to customers, would amount to five to nine cents a gallon increase. But they support it because at least half the money generated would pay for things like electric buses that would reduce pollution in the most overburdened communities, as well as reduce climate impacts from burning fossil fuels. I go back and forth constantly on this on this particular question because I think that uh, I think there are a lot of advantages to it if it's done right but I the the point the the key point you made is that yeah you can't it, you, you have to provide alternatives first let me reintroduce you here for a minute um, I'm speaking yeah. with Catherine Morris who is a public policy uh, person <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and I'm what we're talking about here today is her 10 points of uh, the New Year's resolutions that people could do for, for environmental justice. And I'm gonna swing through some of these others quickly and then, cause I wanted to get to the last one a little bit. Um, you call for more, more green energy, which of course, you know, we need and more education on climate change, which uh, is being, I know young people especially are demanding that and we don't have it in law yet. We have it, you can, you can do it, but you, not, you don't have to do it. So that's a yeah. bit of a problem. More climate resilient infrastructure. I was just on a call right before we talked um, 
about how the infrastructure money, the billions that are coming, you know, to the Northeast corridor could be used, um, you know, to shore up or to, to provide uh, better train service. But then one of the questions was, what about, you know, half the tracks are going to be underwater? So they have to deal with that. And then your last point is more power to the people. So I, I really want to spend a little time, you know, talking about this and how this how this could happen. So why don't you put out your uh, perspective and we can talk about it a little bit. Yeah, so um, again, I do a lot of these things with a health equity mindset as in relation to environmental justice. And I was taking this super cool class during my master's program on um, social determinants of health. And one of on how we impact equity. And there was an entire section on how when communities are better at advocating for themselves, there is a positive correlation with better health outcomes. So whether that looks like communities are better at advocating for um, getting different vaccinations. So in the case of COVID, we see that with COVID vaccinations. But long before that, we saw that with HPV. There was huge deficits in who's getting HPV vaccinations, right? And, so and when people- explain, uh, Yeah, what that- what, Oh, what human papilloma virus. Yeah, and so human papilloma virus, which um, can cause cervical cancer in women and girls. And so there were huge deficits in what communities were getting access to those, um, or also even just the education on it. Uh, so there are good public health outcomes that come from people who are able to collectively organize for their needs. So when it comes very direct to health needs, that's kind of a straightforward one-to-one. If people um, are able to say, hey, I, I'm, are you, do you have that thing? I don't have that thing. <laughs> like, have you gotten that? No, I haven't gotten that. So what are we going to do to get it? It comes, uh, it comes full circle with some of the other things I wrote, right? So for instance, people who, I wish I could name names right now, but the people who created Fridgeport and Fridge Haven and Grow Hartford and Click, that's collective efficacy. Those are people who saw a need in their community for better food and nourishment. And they did that and they created that and they organized that for their people, right? So that is just one form of how when there's more power in people's hands, they can do things that improve the health of the rest of their peers, um, the rest of their community members. But again, I'm here talking about environmental justice in general. So when there are more people who are invested and organizing around the issue of environmental justice, who are um, organizing around what uh, the institutions that they operate around are doing, the policies that their institutions or that their lawmakers are making, that is a form of successful community organizing that can result in more resilient infrastructure so that you're protected in the event of another climate disaster. That can result in uh, more ecological um, uh, education, more climate education that will allow people to start creating the types of solutions needed to meet the issues that are going on currently. That can look like people who are advocating for new green energy so they're not having their communities 
have their air polluted and dealing with the health ramifications of air pollution, right? So that's kind of what I mean by having more power to the people. But by that, I also just mean when we want institutional change, there have been studies that show that change starts at the ground level, so to speak. So where you have CEOs and CFOs, da, 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 they're not the people who are doing the work, nor so they're also not the people who are recognizing the changes that need to be done, the innovations that could be had. So if those people had more power, more decision-making power, they'd be able to transform institutions for the better from the inside out. That's another um, view of this. So it works in a lot of different ways, but something that um, uh, something that a fellow organizer, her name is um, Corinne Prescott, and she has um, Power Up CT. She said that those closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And those are the people who should have more power. And those are the people who should be making the decisions that will shift the tides of their health for themselves, their families, their communities, and for the environment at large. So yeah, more power to the people. <laughs> also, that's how you respond to <laughs> historic devaluation and of people who have been disenfranchised and like actively oppressed, right? Because that power is so dangerous to systems that currently exist. And if the systems that currently exist are harming people and more people than others, those people need to rise up and take back control of their life um, in ways that that most immediately affects them. But also everyone at large. I believe in the concept of, you know, acting locally while thinking globally. So, you know, the, the environmental movement, so-called the climate movement, the one that the one that is, is least covered in the media that people think of is still, you know, pretty white. Um, now, that's not to say that there isn't a lot going on. And I, I, I know about lots of struggles, um, you know, frontline communities, which are tend to be people of color, you know, indigenous communities and people down in the Gulf south who are fighting this all this horrendous infrastructure fossil you know fossil fuel infrastructure and, and uh, petrochemical stuff but um yeah. what i mean what do you, i was it occurred to me that if if the if the environmental movement writ large would sort of look at what you wrote you know through this equity lens these specific things that could go a long way toward you know building an infrastructure, an, sorry, an intersectional and, you know, multiracial environmental and climate movement. Um, yeah. What just, because we don't have time to go really delve into it, but do you have, do you have one thought, at least not, not right now, do you have, like, what's one thing do you think would be impactful to really building, you know, a, a broader movement that's really representational and, and, and through an equity lens? Yeah, it is really about valuing the voices of those frontline, fenceline folks, of the people who are disproportionately affected by the issues. Um, the fact that environmental injustices harm people like myself, but also people of my family, right, as Jamaican immigrants, as people who are islanders, and so on and so forth. 
as queer black women existing in America, um, because we're, our voices are devalued, our perspectives are as well. And so when we call for actions that are holistic and to me, very obvious, and that gets ignored, what's currently happening, what's currently raised is going to keep being, you know, the hot topic. It's going to keep being what people associate with when they think of environmentalism. Uh, and that is an issue with how we view the value of people, uh, which is how we got here in the first place, right? Like we got to these issues of climate change and environmental racism and um, poor resilience, et cetera, because certain people were devalued in the first place, because certain lives weren't seen as mattering as much. And so if that mindset is still operating, then it there's not really any question as to why it is that someone like myself or people um, who are other types of organizers, there are plenty of Black organizers in Connecticut, in climate space, in America, in the climate space at large, who don't get as much screen time or respect as they deserve. And that's because we as people are not getting as much respect as we deserve in general, as much representation, as much meaningful representation, because it's not just inviting people into a room, it's actually listening to them when they talk <laughs> and actually, actually, you know, receiving the information and receiving the experiences and not calling the validity into question, not calling um, credibility into question in ways that you wouldn't do for your white counterparts. Yeah, well, sounds simple, but like, as you said in your in your 10 points, um, they're simple, but not easy. So I want to thank yeah. you, uh, Kat, so much for being with us. I've been speaking with Catherine Morris, um, I, I think you said in your in your description, your little ID. Did you say scholar activist? It, it's. I mean, you're grounded in you know your public policy and your education, and also in your activism. So that makes a lot of sense. I know that um, you have some plans for the summer. Uh, can you just talk about that briefly? So, because I, I think our listeners would be interested in that. Yeah. So, also with more power to the people and more collective. Um, energy and community organizing. There's a need to celebrate what the community already has while you're also discussing what they need. And so to me, music is a huge part of my life. It's a huge part of culture in general. Um, and I love nature. So I will be hosting an event at Seaside Park in Bridgeport, Connecticut to elevate the voices of the people of Bridgeport um, and environmental justice communities in Connecticut uh, throughout the state. But also celebrating our culture by having musical performances and um, allowing people to organize with each other by having groups like 3CM uh, or Black Lives Matter or local artists present their work and recruit members for their organizations. So follow me on Instagram at M-O-R-H-K-A-T to learn more. I will have more information coming out as details get finalized. But yep, Seaside Sounds for Environmental Justice coming this summer. Stay tuned. All right, that sounds great. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m., here at WPKN 89.5 FM for more environmental news you can use.